You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with this morning's sermon, for which our text will be Psalm 126, we have two readings. One from the Old Testament, a bit longer. One from the New Testament, and quite short. The first reading is Second Chronicles chapter 36, beginning at verse 15. We'll read the very end of that book, which tells about the end of Judah's time in the Promised Land, and then the very beginnings of the Restoration, when Cyrus declared that they could return to the Promised Land. 2 Chronicles 36, beginning at verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again, had sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. We'll turn to the New Testament now, to Hebrews chapter 12, the verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Our text this morning is Psalm 126. A song of ascents. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. 
Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning we come to Psalm 126, a song of ascents. And it's a psalm that stretches over the expanse of human emotions as it goes all the way from weeping to laughter and joy. It's a psalm that covers the expanse of human emotions and it's a song that speaks about the journey from one to another. It speaks of and at the same time it longs for restoration. Experience is an experience of hardship, of, of difficulty, some time of needing restoration. And the prayer is that God, the God who works restoration, the only one who's able to work restoration, would bring that to his people. And it's a psalm that calls all pilgrims, all of God's children, on their journey of life, no matter where they are, to find and to find their lasting and their exuberant, expressive joy in the Lord. Because He is the one in whom there is true joy. He is the God of restoration. From the title of the psalm, we know that it's a song of ascents. It's one of the songs that the pilgrims would sing as they made their way up to Jerusalem three times a year for the feasts. The particular feast that fits very well with this psalm is the Feast of Tabernacles. The, the feast that accompanied the wheat harvest or the barley harvest. It's the, after the reapers had brought in the sheaves of wheat and barley from the field, they would celebrate at the Feast of Tabernacles and that fits obviously very well with this psalm as it, re, as it speaks about returning with songs of joy. And carrying sheaves. That experience of, of sowing in hardship, but then reaping in joy, that becomes a metaphor for the lives of God's people. That's what the entire life of God's people is like, and sometimes it's like that over and over and over again. As God's people again and again experience God's faithfulness, they experience God's hand at work in their lives, they experience restoration and the beautiful thing that is and the joy that that causes them in their hearts. And as they have experienced that in the past, so they long for it again. They long for the Lord to bring another time of refreshing from his hand. And so this is a psalm all about the harvest the psalm all about joy. And that's our theme this morning, a harvest of joy. And the psalm goes through a past memory of joy and then the present absence or expectation, longing for joy. And finally, we end with the future expectation. You might even say the future certainty of joy for all of God's people. So a harvest of joy, the past memory of joy. In verses 1 through 3, the pilgrim recalls the good times of the past. This memory, just as you read it, you sense this is a, a rich and a vivid memory. The pilgrim and, and all the people singing the psalm, they have no problem going there in their minds. 
and recalling how wonderful this experience of restoration was. Well, what exactly was the experience that this psalm is speaking about? If you look in verse 1, you'll see that it says, When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion. And that, of course, makes you think about the return to exile, which we, the anticipation of which we read about in Second Chronicles. But if you look at the footnote in your Bible, Psalm 126, the footnote, you'll see there, it says, or... The Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. And so it's hard to tell exactly what's going on there, because if you look at verse 4 very quickly, you'll see that there it says, restore our fortunes. But if you look in the footnote, you'll see it says, bring back our captives. So the translators here are not sure which one's right, and so they pick one the one time, and they pick the other one the second time, sort of trying to hedge their bets. And that's really where we're left with. We don't know what exactly this speaks about. It may speak about the return from exile. And with the return from exile, there was this clear departure from God's word. The people sinned. The way Second Chronicles speaks about it, it's very stark. Again and again and again, they scoffed at the prophets. They despised God's word. They said, we don't need you. We'll go our own way. And so God punished them. And so the restoration under that circumstance would be the people repenting from their sins and the Lord returning to them and bringing them back and saying, here is another chance for you. Live by faith in me. Trust in me. Live in obedience to me. So the hardship may be directly related to the sin of God's people. But at the same time, it may not be directly related to the sin of God's people. Hardship is not always directly related. They could be a generation or two removed from the original offense, like the generation living in Babylon. Wasn't their parents, maybe even their parents' parents, or maybe even one generation before that, that had sinned against the Lord and caused that exile to happen. They could be largely innocent of crime and just the victims of a a pharaoh that says, oh, there's this group of people. I feel threatened by them. I'm going to put them under slavery. And so there's not always this direct connection between needing restoration and sin. And of course, we know in the lives of God's people on an individual level, it's very hard to draw that connection, isn't it? Doesn't the Lord Jesus warn the Pharisees? of linking the blindness of a certain man with his sin or the sin of his parents. And so the hardship that calls for restoration can be a direct result of sin, but it does not necessarily need to be the direct result of sin. It can just be the result of pilgrims traveling the course of life in this broken world where hardship will come. It will meet them on their path. Whatever the case, what's clear is that the Lord was the one who had restored the situation of the people. The work of restoration, no matter what the cause, is always the work of the Lord. It's always the Lord being faithful to his promises. It's always the blessings that come from his hand to his people. And what was the reaction when the Lord restored the fortunes of his people? It was joy. 
It says they were like men who dreamed. They, they were, as they returned to the promised land, they felt like they were walking in a dream or, or in a movie. It, it was, it was too good to be true. They were walking around asking people, can you pinch me? I think I'm dreaming. This is too good. I can't imagine this. This is so wonderful. They would ask people to pull their beards so they could wake up and find, no, I was awake the whole time. This is true. God has restored the fortunes of his people. Could it really be? Yes, it was. They were full of joy. Listen to how it's expressed. Our mouths are filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. Some people are probably thinking, I hope they weren't doing this in church. They they felt this joy and they expressed it. And that's a good thing to do, to express the joy. They were having a party. Can you imagine what that experience would have been like? Have you had an experience of joy? So it's not something funny that happens that causes them to laugh. But they're so overwhelmed with this, this sense of joy that, that they, they laugh. That's all they can do. Can you imagine what that experience would have been like after 70 years in Babylon returning to the promised land? Or after 400 years of it being promised, the people coming out of the exodus and coming to the promised land. Or after being under subjugation by Moab or the Philistines or whatever nation was over them in the time of the judges. Can you imagine that experience of restoration? The Lord has returned and we are the recipients of his restoring grace. And so they were full of joy. You probably have seen lately a picture of the kind of joy that this was, although we're going to see it's a little different. Have you been watching the Olympics at all? You see the joy and celebration that's on the the face of the victor as he completes that race first or as she overcomes all of her opponents. They are filled with joy. It's written all over their face. They're laughing. They're jumping. They're shouting. They're full of joy. But the joy that is spoken of here is not the joy of achievement like an Olympic athlete. There's something special and unique about this joy that the psalm speaks about. It's a joy in the Lord. It's a derivative joy. It's a joy that's not found in what in what these, these captives or these people who had been restored had done. It's a joy that they get from what God has done and what it means for God's great name. It was a joy in the Lord. It was a joy in God's glory. They're rejoicing because their God had done this. The Lord has done great things. So great was the activity of the Lord that even the pagan nations... The nations that despised God and didn't recognize him as God. Even they said the Lord has done great things for them. We can't deny it. The Lord has done great things for them. Yes, they say, because the Lord has done great things for us, we're filled with joy. Restoration is always the work of the Lord and it brings great joy to his people. Have you ever felt this Elation, this sort of joy when the Lord has so glorified his name that you felt compelled to rejoice with singing, that your mouth filled with laughter. Have you ever even had the experience that this psalm speaks about? 
has it ever begun with, the Lord has done great things for us. It's an experience that I hope all of you will enjoy. For those who are young, maybe you haven't experienced that deep down. When you, when you realize so clearly, this is something that the Lord has done. Only He could do this. And I just rejoice in what God has done. Or to those, perhaps you're new and you don't know what the gospel is all about. What's with Christians and Christianity? There's something special about the joy that comes from seeing God glorify His name in salvation, in restoration, when the Lord shows His power. Also thinking of those who may feel like joy is something that Christians actually should stay away from. Should be more serious. Should be more stoic. Let's avoid those extremes, the weeping, the joy. Let's just take a path down the middle. Well, this psalm teaches us that there's not a path down the middle because the path the Lord takes us on travels all sorts of experiences, good times and hard times. So there's weeping and there's joy. Yes, joy becomes like the motto of the Christian life. When Paul urges the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always, that's what he's referring to. The Lord has done great things for us. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice when the Lord shows his glory. When the Lord does great things. And of course, what the Apostle Paul is referring to is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the work of Jesus Christ. Joy has everything to do with being a Christian because being a Christian is all about seeing the work of Jesus Christ. That brings us great joy. In the return from the exile, God vindicated his name. Time and time again, God came to the rescue of his people and he restored them to himself. But that was really only a temporary measure. If that caused these people that kind of joy, then what about when God sent his own son into the world? To save his people and to restore them to himself once and for all with his once for all time sacrifice. In Christ, God absolutely vindicated his name. So that the pagans would say the Lord has done great things for them. The pagans would even say the Lord has done great things for us. Isn't that right? We all of pagan stock. The Lord has done great things for us. If anyone can say it, we who believe in Jesus Christ can take these words on our lips. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. And so the psalmist recalls that past experience. And the Christian life is one that includes times of intense joy and even includes a theme of joy that Stretches over the whole part of it. But you know what? The Christian life also has times of intense sorrow. If you don't believe that, then read the Psalms. Read David expressing his sorrow to the Lord. Read Jeremiah in his laments. That is deep, deep sorrow that Jeremiah experiences. Read church history. Read about Martin Luther. Charles Spurgeon, and the sorrow that they felt in their lives as they served the Lord. These were men who knew joy. They knew joy, 
But they also knew that the Christian life is a journey. And along the journey, you don't stay in the same place the whole time. And that sorrow is expressed in verse 4, in the lament of verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev is the area in the southern tip of of Israel, the southern part of Judah. It's a wilderness. It's an uninhabitable place. It's a desert. The tears and the weeping that this psalm speaks about it is the sorrow of the present as God's people are experiencing these desert-like conditions. They're going through hardship. They can't see the material blessings of the Lord. And the spiritual ones even are hard to grasp. That sense of joy is, is a memory, but it's not right there with them at this moment. And so when the psalm speaks about those who sow in tears, it's speaking about the present situation for the people of Israel. The pilgrim faces these present, this present trial with sorrow, with deep and painful emotion and with tears. Is that okay? Is it okay for this pilgrim to be sad? Do you believe that Christians shouldn't be sad? Tears are a sign of weakness. What's wrong? Don't you understand what Jesus Christ has done? Why don't you just suck it up? Pilgrims experience sorrow. This psalm makes us confront the reality of tears. The reality of real, deep Painful emotion. Pilgrims go through hard and difficult times. Real pilgrims cry. They hurt. And they can't just get over it or hold it in. What's the cause of the sorrow? Well, just like we don't know what exactly sits behind the psalm, we don't know exactly what the cause is. It may be one of those dips, those hard times in Israel's history, those times of apostasy and rebellion. And so it could be a sorrow of repentance when God's people finally come to realize that they have offended God by their sin. And so they humble themselves before him and ask for his mercy. The Bible is full of those incidents. But we know that sorrow is not always connected with those times. We know that sorrow is also not only not always connected with the experience of all Israel, but it can be the experience of individual pilgrims as they journey through this broken world. And they experience sin in their lives, or they experience the brokenness of this world in their lives. Sin in the heart of a believer produces a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, we learn in 2 Corinthians. But other things can cause sorrow in the life of a believer. When a believer is attacked or harassed or hurt by someone else's sin, that causes sorrow as well. Or when you see a loved one, a brother or sister in the Lord, someone that you care about and they're hurting themselves or they're being harmed by others, that causes you sorrow. Or when you see God's name defamed in this world, when you see God's glory brought low, that causes sorrow. Pilgrims are keenly aware of that feeling, that pit in your stomach, that feeling that quickly rises to fill your whole body, that feeling of weeping and sobbing that comes over you, the pouring out your heart to God because you have been affected by this world, by the sin around you or the sin in your own heart. This life causes sorrow. 
and you hurt. Now, whether Christians or pilgrims experience sorrow, that's not the point of the psalm. That's a given. They do. The psalm, though, teaches is what do we do? What do God's people do in those times? That sorrow is overwhelming. An experience of blessing is seems far away or a distant memory. Well, of course, the first part is to recall the Lord's faithfulness. That's what psalmist does at the beginning. Remember when the Lord restored his people? He'll do that again. That's what the Lord does. He's a restoring God. He's faithful to his promises. What it further teaches, the second thing, is to pray. Pray to God. That's what this psalm does. Pray to the Lord. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. He's the only one who can restore fortunes. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. When those streams came to the Negev, it would transform that dry and barren land to an oasis. Very quickly, beautiful vegetation would form around those stream beds. And so the pilgrims are asking for a quick and a beautiful restoration. Pray to the Lord. Restore our fortunes. He's the God who holds your life in his hand. And the third thing that the psalm teaches us to do is to sow. To sow. This means through your tears, as you experience this sorrow, be faithful yourself. Do what God has commanded you to do. You may be experiencing sorrow, but God has still showed you the way through this sorrow. Look to him in faith and then respond to him in obedience. Sow your seed. Every farmer knows that if they don't sow their seed, they're not going to reap a harvest. It's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of faithfulness. When the time is right, you need to sow your seed. Why is this so difficult? Well, it has to do with sorrow. Sorrow can be one of the hardest emotions to live with. You just want to get rid of it. You don't want that feeling anymore. It's hard to live with. You just want to get rid of it, cast it off, make things better. And in the midst of sorrow, the quickest solution can often seem like the best one. Even though it's not, oftentimes. But the quickest one can seem like the best one. And that's why so many people turn to alcohol or drugs or anger or resentment or sexual immorality or distraction. Because they they sense that sorrow, they sense that brokenness, they sense that sin, and they just want it to go away. Get rid of that feeling. And so if they can get rid of it, it feels like they're doing what's right. The wrong reaction feels like the right one. You see this when a man is deeply offended. Yes, when a man is deeply hurt. He feels that sorrow. But how does he respond to it? He flies into a rage. He gets angry. The anger feels better than the sorrow. Sometimes you see this when a young woman has been hurt by someone who's taken advantage of her. She doesn't want to feel that way again, so she takes control. She becomes aggressively promiscuous herself. Sorrow strikes very deep. It strikes right to the core. It leaves you with this open wound inside. And so the sinful reaction is easy to justify because that pain is so real. 
this isn't my fault that I'm doing this. I was wronged in the first place. I have needs. I deserve to be happy. I don't deserve to feel sad like this. I've been hurt and I'm going to make sure that this never happens again. Look at this psalm and let it teach us how to respond to sorrow. What's the reactions of the pilgrims? They remember God's faithfulness in the past. They turn their attention to God and ask him to restore them. And then they sow their seed. They're faithful. They're obedient. They felt the sorrow. They wept over the sorrow. They grieved the pain, the loss, the misery. But then so plant your seed. Trust that God is faithful. And that the time for sowing and that for some. Sowing in tears is what they need to go through. If the farmer neglects to sow, he will experience no joy in the harvest. If the pilgrim neglects to follow God's ways, the time of sorrow may pass, but the joy in the Lord will be slower in coming. Sowing is an act of faith. It's what God calls us to do, even when it seems in vain. Why am I doing this now? Is this a season of sorrow for you? The way forward, the way to turn your sorrow into songs of joy is to trust in the Lord and obey Him. Trust in His plan. Trust in the power of Christ's work. Trust in the way of the Holy Spirit, the way that the Holy Spirit lays out before us in God's Word. And so... And there's another application, which is just right here. And that's for the church. How do we respond to the sorrow and brokenness around us as a church, as a body? You look at the world around you, you see all these things happening. What do you do? You become sad, yes. But, but do we get sad and wring our hands? Oh no, what's happening to this world? Oh no, what's happening? We're all doomed. What does the Lord teach us to do? The metaphor is right there in the New Testament. It's to sow. The world is being troubled by the gospel, or by the, by sin. Sow the seed of the gospel. Sow it in this world. Obey the command of God to go out into the world bringing this message of joy. Joy that's found in Jesus Christ. That's the problem. This world is broken because of sin. This world needs the gospel. So what do we do in response to the sinfulness in this world? We're called to sow the seed of the gospel. When we do so as a church, as individuals, we can have a future expectation of joy. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Like I said, it's very possible that the song was written to coincide with the Feast of Tabernacles. In Deuteronomy 16, Moses says of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Lord will bless you in all the work of your hands and your joy will be complete. That time of harvest was a time of joy, a time of gathering in what God and his faithfulness had provided for his people. 
That sowing season may have been one of great difficulty. The present time for Israel may be one that's surrounded by difficulty, but even then, the time of harvest is a time of joy. And so that joy becomes a metaphor for life. Weeping over the sorrows of life is a reality, but God's faithfulness in salvation and restoration is also a reality. Finding joy in Him is a reality. Our Lord Jesus Christ was a man of sorrows. He suffered deeply during His whole life. And the suffering only grew as He moved toward the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the weight of our sins pressed out of Him caused him misery to the point that he was sweating blood. So much was he feeling the sorrow of his people. Why did he do this? He was God. He didn't need to feel the sorrow. Why did he do this? Hebrews 12 says that he did it for the joy set before him. He knew that his father had a plan. He committed himself to his father. And he knew that that plan was for the glory of his father's name and for the joy of his people. Our Lord Jesus Christ found his joy in that. And the very work that he did in doing that was to defeat sin and all of its sorrow, including effects. The plan of our God from the very beginning has been to conquer sin, to overcome sorrow, and to put an end, yes, an end to weeping. Do pilgrims experience sorrow? Yes, we do. But through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we know what lies before us is joy. Jesus Christ has won the decisive battle over sin and sorrow. And the day and the war one day will be complete as well. The joy is before us. We get a foretaste of it here. It will be complete. Through Jesus Christ, we already experience a taste of this joy. Those who know of the effectiveness of his work, they've wet their lips on that joy. It's already begun to bubble up inside of them. But, but our joy is still mixed with sadness. Our joy is, as in the psalm, still blended with lament. Looking to Jesus Christ, the nations are saying, the Lord has done great things. And we truly can say, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. But one day, one day there will be no qualifiers to that. One day we won't need to explain ourselves. What do we mean by that? One day it's going to be full and complete joy. And so we rejoice in the Lord, the Lord who carries us along our journey, the Lord who turns weeping into dancing and sorrow into joy. And so what do we do? We recall God's faithfulness in the past. We call upon God, restore our fortunes. And we confess with his people of all times, the Lord has done great things for us. Yes, in Jesus Christ, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the God whose promises are sometimes so astounding, 
that we have trouble believing them. We place our trust in you. And we turn to you and ask in whatever season of life we are in that you would restore our fortunes. And that for your church in this world and this whole world itself that you would restore our fortunes. Help us to live by faith and to walk in the way that you have set before us in your word. You have done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.